You're tuning into the Active Mom Podcast with physical therapist, Dr. Carrie Pagliano, a real mom's guide to all things postpartum return to workouts after baby. If you're a postpartum mom, coach, trainer, or physical therapist looking for answers on how to get back to running, CrossFit, yoga, Pilates, HIIT, you name it without the fear of pelvic floor issues or doing something wrong, this is the podcast for you. Let's start the show. All right. I think 2023 has been the year of talking about hormones, whether you are pregnant, postpartum, perimenopause, menopause, it's kind of everywhere. And any place I go, I'm talking about it with my friends. And so I have invited Ashley Winter. She is a urologist in California. Um, and she talks about hormones a lot over on Twitter, whatever it's called this week. Um, and sometimes over on Instagram, where it is a little bit nicer, but Dr. Ashley Winter, welcome to the Active Mom Postpartum Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. You're so right about those two platforms. I posted the same exact content on both Instagram and Twitter slash X yesterday. And on Twitter slash X, I got called a lot of vile names. Mm -hmm. And then on Instagram for the exact same content, people said, mm -hmm. oh, this is so empowering. I'm crying reading this. And you're just like, the vibes are so different. We're, <laughs> we're, bringing, we're bringing you over to the happy place. Like, I mean, I will go to, to, to Twitter again, whatever it's called this week for certain kinds of information, but now it's happier. So come on over. <laughs> I know. I know. I love, I just, it sucks. Cause I love I know. the format I know. I hear of the Twitter. I, hear I love it, but it's like, the vibes are I know. so bad. I know. Well, tell us a <laughs> it, little bit about kind yeah. of who you are, where you're from, and like you, you've gone through a bunch of big changes this year too. So why don't you you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, who am I? Again, I'm a board certified urologist. Um, I did a my residency in urology um, in New York City at Cornell, and I um, did a fellowship in male and female sexual dysfunction after that. Um, in part, I did the male and female sexual dysfunction fellowship because I felt like a lot of the common sense or the, sorry, the common concerns that patients were coming to my clinic with were not really being addressed by the knowledge I was being given. Right. So you had in a urology residency, you learned how to take out a bladder, to take out a kidney, to know every single thing about the latest prostate cancer therapeutics, but then you would have a clinic day and a patient come would, would come to you and say, it burns when I pee, but I don't have an infection. And you'd say, I, I don't know how to deal with that. Yeah. I, I just had 400 hours of lectures on prostate cancer, but I don't know how to deal with that. <laughs> and, um, and that was so frustrating, right? Because I had a gazillion <laughs> years of education and I felt like I needed to give real solutions to problems like that and not just say, well, you, you're not dying, so it's okay. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and, and the fellowship really gave me a lot of tools to address a lot of concerns that I hadn't been able to address before. So that's kind of the background. Um, I was working at a large managed care organization as an attending for five years after fellowship. And then I left um, to be more entrepreneurial and work on a bunch of different product projects um, in the health tech space, because I do believe that, um, you know, we need 
to enact a lot of change really fast um, to improve sexual health care for everybody. Um, and that's why I think things like social media and podcasting are also so important because you have to get good quality education out to people, um, you know, and doing it in our appointments one on one. Uh, you know, is often not going to be able to move the needle in terms of of teaching all the people we need to teach. So that's like the really long <laughs> answer, the answer to that that you didn't ask for. Um, all good. All good. Uh, yeah. And then in terms of this past year, so uh, yeah, I mean, my my daughter is is just about to celebrate her first birthday. Oh my so, gosh. Congratulations. You made it. Thank you. I <laughs> cannot believe it. Is it easy now? <laughs> no, no, no. My, I, no. my kids are uh, 10 <laughs> and I'm, I, I'm going to have a 13 year old in February, which is completely blowing my mind because he's still my baby. So no, it just gets different. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Don't worry about any of that later stuff. It'll come when it comes. You'll all be good. <laughs> oh my God. I know it's so funny, you know, cause, um, my child's undergoing this sleep regression and she's mm. had been a really great sleeper. And now she's waking up every two hours. And, you know, my husband was talking about it to, to a friend of his and they're like, okay, but, but she's not a teenager and she doesn't hate you yet. So just enjoy. Yeah. It. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I have, I have active conversations with my 10 year old um, and she's delightful. And, and she's like, mama, someday I will not hate you. I promise you. I'm like, no, honey, you're going to hate me. Let's just get that cleared up up front. I know you don't mean it. She's like, no, no, no. I love you. I'm like, but someday you will say that you hate me. It's fine. All good. <laughs> We're you know, planning so for funny. it. <laughs> so I remember, um, do you remember dare like mm -hmm. in school? Yep. Right. For, for, you know, the listeners who are not millennials, it was the drug and alcohol education program um, in schools in the whatever 80s, I guess. Um, and I remember in D.A.R.E. us all sitting around being like, oh, yeah, we'll never try alcohol. You know, well, that sounds so bad. I would <laughs> never try alcohol. And every kid in the class was sitting in this circle saying, alcohol sounds horrible. Right. And then, you know, and then fast forward to college. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say your first night in college. <laughs> right. Right. Not before. Right. <laughs> right. But probably when you were 10 years old, you sat there and said, no, I will never do that. Yep. You know? So, yep. so I totally get it about the 10 year old saying that they will never say they hate you. Because, yeah, exactly. You know, just, exactly. There's just the phases and it's, it happens. Um, I was I was chuckling in the back of my head. I was like, "How is she going to connect dare to sleep regression?" <laughs> oh but, yeah, you know, I don't. My brain. Goes I'm away. never going to have a kid. I'm never. My kid. Well, no, but I think that's a good point, though, is because you always think that like your kid will sleep. Like it's just somebody else's kid that won't sleep. My yeah. first did not sleep the first five years of its life. He does sleep now, thank God. So it's a wonder I had a second. But I try not to share that with people because they they either think I'm full of shit or they think that, oh my God, if their kid's not sleeping, their kid's going to end up like mine. He's fine. He's great. He's normal. It's all good. But no, I get you. <laughs> I yeah. get you. They do that. Yeah, but they will totally. sleep one day. I literally had to drag him out of bed this morning. So, oh all right. God. We're going to make a, a hard left here and talk yes. about hormones um, because there has been so much this year um, from the very start of 2023 talking about hormones, I think a lot, you know, initiating in, in like the perimenopausal menopausal space with the, you know, debunking of WHI. Um, but there's not a lot that we hear about hormone levels 
um, in pregnancy and postpartum and how there can be some parallels in, in like low estrogen states. So can you maybe kind of start us off by talking about what kind of general hormone levels, um, like a, a normal cycle and then kind of what happens in pregnancy and then postpartum, because I think a lot of people don't understand that. And so they, they have that, they don't have that basis of information. And then we talk about sexual health and pain with sex after, you know, childbirth and, and breastfeeding and all that stuff. They don't know how to connect all these things. So maybe we can kind of start with like the basics. Yes. Great question. And I want to stay off the top. Um, I think part of the reason our understanding or our general awareness of hormone health in the postpartum phase is such garbage is because there is such absolute focus on the child and this feeling like any part of your body that's not related to the child is not important. Yes. And, you know, when I, again, <laughs> was postpartum myself and had had a crash C-section, so a major intra-abdominal surgery, um, you know, I had multiple visits with the lactation consultant, which was amazing. My daughter had probably 10 visits to the pediatrician because she was low weight and she had yeah. jaundice. And I had one telephone appointment six weeks later. Yeah. And that was it. Right. And and I don't blame my obstetrician's um, practice because there's no reimbursement for anything else. Right. right. And so our healthcare structure does not value the woman's body unless it's providing nutrient to the baby or doing something for the baby. And we have, we deserve to feel good. <laughs> yes. And, you know, we are important. So, so it is so great that we're talking about this. Um, so anyway, to backtrack, uh, in terms of a normal cycle, right? Um, let's say when you're having your typical um, um, ovulatory cycle, right? You have um, peaks in your in your hormone levels. So basically, your estrogen level goes up, and then um, right around the time you ovulate, then it stays higher for the second phase. Um, and then your progesterone basically goes up during the, during the second half of your menstrual cycle. I'm not explaining that very well, but, um, basically you have estrogen, progesterone, and actually testosterone also, um, that have fluctuating levels, um, throughout your cycle, uh, but they are very important in your body. And then after you become pregnant, um, essentially your estrogen levels become quite high and those are the highest levels of estrogen you are going to have in your entire life. Um, you know, in fact, there was actually really interesting research that just came out showing that women with a history of estrogen receptor positive breast cancer who became pregnant after their diagnosis and while they were undergoing um, estrogen suppression treatment who stopped the estrogen suppressing treatment for pregnancy actually yeah. did okay. Right. And so yeah. that's like a really, really important thing because there are young women who get breast cancer and they still want to have more children, but also yep. to remember that estrogen is like not the boogeyman. And we focus right. so much on estrogen medication, 
but we have the best case example of ultra high levels of estrogen during pregnancy, right. not causing adverse breast cancer outcomes. So that's like super cool. But anyway, yes. so you have these fluctuating levels of estrogen, progesterone, and pretty stable levels of testosterone um, during your regular cycle. Um, the levels are the lowest on average around the time of menstruation um, and right before. Um, and we could get to that in a future episode um, about why there's actually a lot of cyclical urinary and bladder symptoms yeah. um, that can exist right around the time of your period. So, so hormone related urinary and genital symptoms are not just for peri and postmenopause, not just for postpartum, but they actually can be for reproductive age women with cycles. Um, which is also really important to realize and so under discussed. But anyway, yeah. so I saw you post about that the other day. And I was like, I, I, I think that's such an important, that's why I wanted to have you on is because you take all this stuff that people are just isolating in perimenopause and menopause. It's like, no, we can actually have low estrogen states at other times. And these yes. other things can be applicable. And, you know, these moms that have urgency for, or even just women who aren't, you know, having kids, are having urinary symptoms and whatnot. And people just don't understand how important estrogen is across the lifespan, how many places yes. there are estrogen receptors in our entire body. Like we just yes. need a estrogen needs like a PR campaign <laughs> and testosterone and progesterone. And that's why I'm like, okay. And, and with our daughters, they need to know up front, you know, it's not just the girl hormone in fifth grade health class. Like we need to yes. be a little more clear on this. So that's why I was like, please talk through this. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yes. No. And I will interject on yes. that. There was, there's a great study and I need to do a post on social media about this also, but where they looked at urodynamics of mm -hmm. women who were reproductive age women who were menstruating um, and they aggregated information on where they were in their cycle and what their bladder symptoms were. Right. And so mm -hmm. urodynamics is like a test usually done in a urologist office um, or a urogynecologist's office where they look at um, bladder filling, bladder storage, bladder symptoms, bladder function. You know, it's in a sense kind of like the echocardiogram of the bladder, if you will. Um, but they, saw, you know, over, I think, 1500 women's tracings, that there was a distinct pattern related mm -hmm. to menstrual cycle, where it was more common to have overactive bladder around the time of menses when estrogen is lower, yeah. right? So there are women who come in and say, I have urgency, frequency, bladder pain right around the time of my period. Yep. And we're like, I don't know why. Well, <laughs> I have found even in women like that, they could be, let's say, 25. Yep. Use a little bit of topical estrogen cream around the time of your menses. And you could have a life-altering impact, right? Yeah. So like you're saying, it is not just a menopause question. It is not just a perimenopause question. It is not just a postpartum question. It's fascinating. And we could improve people's lives throughout their lifespan. And it, we just don't yep. talk about any of it. Um, you know, or we say, oh, because you're 25 and you're menstruating, right. your hormones are by definition 
fine, <laughs> right? Okay. And it's so much more complex than that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I digress. So back to the pregnancy thing, right? So your estrogen levels are extremely high during pregnancy, and then you give birth and they tank, right? Yep. They absolutely tank. And I even remember my sis, my older sister who had uh, her first child before me, she's like, I was so prepared for pregnancy. I was so prepared for childbirth. Yeah. I had no problems with childbirth. I had an easy delivery. She's like, nobody told me how it felt after the baby comes out. And, and I felt crazy. <laughs> and yeah. my body was shaking and everything was different. And nobody yes. talked to me about that. And a huge component of that is the hormones. So basically your levels tank, you go into this menopause like state from the standpoint of low hormones. It's not obviously a menopause like state from the standpoint of your ovary going into this quiescent phase. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but from a hormone level, it is menopause-like. And if you are breastfeeding, that phase is often much protracted and goes on quite a bit longer. And the reason is because um, the, the milk-producing hormones in the brain actually suppress estrogen production. Um, now, you it, it varies woman to woman right mm -hmm. and menstruation ovulation come back even while you're breastfeeding yep. after a number of months which can be variable um but uh there is a longer suppression if you're if you're breastfeeding for sure um and you know the unfortunate thing is like we just don't have a ton of information about when exactly the estrogen levels resume to their normal level yeah. when exactly um, symptoms related to low estrogen resolve. Like there is no actual medical term for yeah. the genital and urinary symptoms associated with the low estrogen state after, after pregnancy, which is wild, right? I well, mean, it was just... I, th yeah. I, I think that most women don't even understand, like, I think they, they sort of pay attention preparing for pregnancy, because if, if you're trying to track your ov ovulation and that sort of stuff, you're, you're going to be down with it. And then once you get pregnant, I think everybody just sort of doesn't pay attention. And they're like, okay, no big deal. Yeah. Estrogen's going to go up. That makes sense. But when you literally think about, like, no one told me about the hot flashes, um, the first hot week flashes. or two postpartum. What the frick was that? Like, no one told me the yes. middle of the night because you've got milk coming everywhere. You're sweat, like, yes. soaked in sweat. You've got like yes. crap coming out of everywhere. No one told me that one. Like, that was not cool. Um, yes. <laughs> but when you look at it in the rear view, it's like, duh, low estrogen, hot flash. You've done this before. And I was like, how come we don't just like put this stuff together? Like, and why was it that I had to wait? Again, I'd been in this field for like 15 years before I had my first kid. Like, where was that? <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> no, seriously. I think about that, right? I mean, I read so many blogs and so many things about mm -hmm. how to prepare for childbirth and mm -hmm. pregnancy. And I had read, you know, 50 different 
articles about which stroller to buy yes. and what yeah. playlist to make during labor. Like, who cares? I, right? I like, laminated you're going birth plan, by the way. Um, oh my gosh. You yeah, are, my son has it. Uh, no, 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 no. Cause uh, like, no, that's I mean, impressive. <laughs> no, I, I, no, but here's the thing I was being, and I, I've told this story before, like I was trying to be considerate and like, of course I yeah. had this well planned and blah, blah, whatever. My, my kid never read it. I ended up with a, a C-section after a three day induction. So long story short, don't laminate your birth plan. But again, <laughs> to your point, you research all this crap, but never once in any of that did no. hot flashes come up. Never once in, and literally, I I, I, so I'm kidding you not. Like it wasn't until I was sitting here and you said that, I'm like, of course, hot flashes, low estrogen, like, come on. Why aren't we, why aren't we preparing women up front that this is what low estrogen states feel like. And yes. these are the times that you will be in low estrogen states. And one of those will be immediately postpartum. And of course you've heard of this, but in your head, low estrogen and hot flash, you're thinking of, of Blanche Devereaux and like golden girls. You're not thinking of the first yes. week's postpartum. I'm like, I don't have white hair. Like, Yes. And we don't ever portray it anywhere. No, right? Like the, no. the, all the portrayals on social media of the new mom and she's tired mm -hmm. and the baby's waking up and mm -mm. maybe even we're starting to portray the true nature of lactation right i mean there mm -hmm. was some show on i think it was hbo where the woman like forgot to pump and her shirt got wet and she was sitting yep. at a train station and, and i was like wow that's cool we're actually mm -hmm. showing the fact that this is complicated and sucks and we're not just like perfect little bottle well, but, chests but so <laughs> but, remember it was um a couple years ago it was on netflix it was like sex life or something like that and it's yes. like and it was so messed up because the, the guy, I don't remember who he was, but he was super hot. And so she's still like breastfeeding. Um, and then she's going off to the city at night and like having not quite an affair with hot ex-boyfriend. And I'm like, yes. no, you're not. It's, you're freaking oh tired. Oh my God. You you're you're <laughs> not going to be like, I'm so hot with my milk spots. And then going out and trying to pursue some super hot guy. It's not happening. <laughs> no, it's not happening. It's not happening. The that biggest fantasy of that loud. show is that that woman had any interest in, 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 in any sex, right? Like she would have been like, Oh no, I have the night off. I'm going to bed early. Right. Exactly. <laughs> not, exactly. not I'm going, yes. Going to find my ex in the so, city. That no. is so Even funny. though he was ridiculously hot, but anyway, point being you, you mentioned something um, in a post lately that I, I was super excited to see. Um, and it was a play on genitourinary symptoms and menopause. And you're like, genitourinary symptoms of lactation. I was like, thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Yes. Can you can you kind of dive into that a little bit? Because lots of times women, um, their symptoms are brushed off by their provider saying, oh, just stop breastfeeding and it'll all go away, which um, I don't know that that's actually true. But there are, you know, if somebody is lactating, there can be some things that, you know, can be happening. Totally. So as you mentioned, and we're, you know, immediately postpartum, we're getting these hot flashes, we're low estrogen state. And then when you start breastfeeding, your prolactin is high associated with the milk production that continues to suppress your estrogen. And essentially what can happen is that we develop the genital and urinary symptoms associated with low estrogen state. Um, which has no medical term, which I said on social media, we could call genitose or urinary syndrome of lactation. And those can be all the same symptoms that we typically associate with perimenopause and postmenopause. Yeah. Uh, so for example, 
um, bladder urgency and frequency, feeling like you have a UTI, even though there's no infection, um, you know, even potentially some leakage with cough and sneeze, yep. um, certainly pain with sex. And unfortunately, most people are not educated that these symptoms can be related to estrogen levels, or as you're saying, they just are told to stop breastfeeding, um, which that doesn't have to be the solution. Right. Uh, there are other interventions we can offer. And I can say with my own personal experience, I was experiencing those symptoms and I spoke to my OB and I said, you know, I'm having painful sex. And she said, okay, I'll put in the referral to physical therapy. And, um, and I knew it was particularly associated with Yeah. And physical therapy is so important for so many postpartum women. Yep. But if it's from mucosal dryness, yes, from a lack of estrogen, then the patient's going to end up in your office and they're not going to be successful uh, because they're not getting multimodal therapy. Right. And so, and I said to her, I need vaginal estrogen. I would like a prescription for that because I knew. And she was like, oh yeah, of course, no problem. But I wonder if I was not me and not a hormone obsessed urologist. Yes. She would have said, oh, sex is painful. Go to physical therapy. I would have gotten my referral to physical therapy. And you know, I'm not sure what would have happened. I'm sure I would have gotten really important advice, but it wouldn't have, but I would have needed that multimodal therapy. And I wouldn't have gotten it. Yeah. And that's where I I think, you know, like, yay, we're moving forward that we're actually referring to moms to early PT. But I think so important for those of us that are in kind of the postpartum space. And this is even, you know, coaches and trainers and stuff that have conversations with, with um, their patients, like know when, it's something else and know the why behind it because yeah, okay. There might be a PT component to it, but if it's superficial, if it's dryness, like you said, if it's mucosal, like I'm not gonna do anything about that. Like that's not my jam, but I need to know if their OB isn't going to give them vaginal estrogen, how do I help them find somebody who will? Um, Because their provider may not be up to date on doing that. Their provider might say, oh, well, it'll affect your milk. That's why I don't um, prescribe it. And it's local. So no, Um, like those are the, and that's, it's not as simple as, hey, just go talk to your OB about vaginal estrogen. There's so many barriers. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit and what the challenges are for, for moms trying to get, you know, vaginal estrogen? Yes. So this is a great point. And as you mentioned, there is a large misconception that using a low dose vaginal estrogen, which is extraordinarily uh, effective at treating this genitourinary syndrome of lactation, there is this misconception that it will affect the milk supply. Yep. Um, you know, part of the problem again is when it comes to pregnant or postpartum women or lactating women, there is not enough research because for a number of reasons, right? Researchers say, oh, it's a transient state. So why does it matter? Um, Just kind of 
BS because you deserve to have quality of life. Yes. Uh, again, not just your kid, you are human. Well, and you might be breastfeeding for a couple of years. Like it's not, years. you know, like this is, this is not short term. No gig, you no, know, for sure. For sure. And thankfully, as you get further out, right. So I think the American Association of Pediatrics recommended that you try to breastfeed up to two years, which mm -hmm. is like, that is such a challenge on mm -hmm. people's lives. Yes. Um, but thankfully, as you get far out, um, so you're talking, let's say, past that one year, maybe potentially earlier, depending on the person, yep. um, you do uncouple that lactation from the from the neurochemical. So you okay. will not, you will resume getting your, your normal estrogen levels, essentially. But but in those months after childbirth, uh, it is a huge, huge issue. Um so, so anyway, <laughs> um, the misconception that it affects milk supply, right? We know for a fact that it is a local treatment and even women with, um, breast cancer, right. Who have, who have breast cancer, not just a high risk for breast cancer. We know that women with breast cancer don't have, adverse outcomes when they're using low dose vaginal estrogen, right? Yeah. So if we know for a fact with data aggregated from tons and tons and tons of women that yeah. low dose vaginal estrogen is not going to affect your cancer biology, right. right? Why would it, why would it affect the lactation? And I think what happens is there are so many people who have trouble with lactation Yep. that if they end up getting treatment for their concerns yep. um, and their milk supply goes down or never gets to where they wanted it to be, then they're going to blame themselves. And they're going to say, I did this treatment to feel better, to improve my genital urinary right. symptoms. And I use this low dose vaginal estrogen and my milk supply never came in or it dropped off. And those could be from a gazillion different reasons. Right. But we're going to focus on the one thing you did for yourself. <laughs> well, <laughs> you and, know what and I mean? So many moms, like it, it, to your point, like there's so much pressure to breastfeed and there's so many challenges to getting it right. And it's hard AF, like it just, it is. And even like my first wasn't the worst and my second was hard. And it was, I didn't expect that. And the thing is like, I, whenever there's a question in your head of like, if I take this, it might affect my milk. You work so damn hard to get this. And it's the one thing you might've gotten right. Like it's, I think it just puts this fear that you don't want to put that in jeopardy. And that's why I think we have to start with the education up front of like, actually, no, this is local. It's fine. It's not going to screw with all the hard work that you put in. Like, but again, it's, it's, it's going back to, we need to get these things in people's brains before, because once you become a, a mom, I feel like you're, you're, it's, you're constantly worried about, you know, the other shoe dropping. You're like, God, I work so hard to do this. I don't want to mess it up. And and even if somebody says, oh no, it'll be totally fine. Like there's, you're still scared. And I, yeah. I think you got to tell people when they're not under the gun, like it's not fair. They're already so stressed out again, totally. depressive state because they're in low estrogen. <laughs> Yes. Oh my God. What percent? I mean, we know for a fact yes. right, that low estrogen affects your brain 
neurobiology, we know that depression is much higher during perimenopause, right? Menopause transition. Yep. Postpartum depression is a perimenopausal phenomenon. It is. It is. And it's never talked about like that. Ever, 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 ever. No. Ever. No. It's fucking crazy. (laughs) Um, It's crazy. (laughs) I was just thinking about this the other day. Um, But yeah, and and, you know, I think another, just to talk about more discreet um, practical tips about prescribing for both, you know, healthcare providers who might be listening to this, but also for, for potential patients and people who are going to be postpartum. Um, you know, there are some tricks I use. For example, the typical, what we call topical estrogen treatment or low-dose vaginal estrogen treatment usually starts with um, one gram, let's say, of a 0.01% cream. So one gram every night for two weeks mm-hmm. and then twice a week. And that one gram every night for two weeks is a little bit of a higher dose mm-hmm. that could potentially be associated with some systemic absorption. So I don't have people start at that because that is the treatment you're using for peri and postmenopausal mm-hmm. urinary symptoms, yep. right? So I just have them start at twice a week, one gram twice a week. Um, or you could do half a gram, right, right, more frequently, or depending on their comfort level, say, okay, your your symptoms are primarily urinary and urethral, maybe of urethral burning, whatever, mm-hmm. a teeny tiny bit, and just dab it over your urethra, and then see how you do. And if that resolves your symptoms, you don't even need any more. That right. treatment lasts you six months, right? right. Um, we we it's not a pill, you know, there's, we can tweak it. Um, And then if they're doing well, and there's no change in their lactation, which of course, we knew there wouldn't be, but they needed to see that and feel it in their own body, then they can, as they feel comfortable, work into it a little more, right? And say, okay, maybe I am going to put this inside the vagina for my vaginal dryness. So there are tips and tricks um, again, this isn't listed anywhere. I don't think that there's no guidelines on this. There's like nothing. Yeah. Well, I, I think, and I think that's like, it's like good news, bad news. And and I mean, our field, I love it because it's constantly changing and improving and it's, it's a hell of a lot better than it was, you know, 20, 25 years ago when I first started. But um, I think the other challenge is too, is those of us that are like on top of it, we're like, yeah, let's do this. Let's do this. And then you have patients that, you know, they're trying to do the right thing. They go back and they talk to their provider and their provider says no. Right. And for us, it puts us in almost like as as physios, almost in like a subservient position where like, oh, well, my doctor said this, like, how do we help advocate for our patients to find providers who are up to date with information? How do we find, I I, I have a friend actually, she's, um, I guess there's more, you, you would know about this, more of these tech companies that will do kind of telehealthy sorts of things. Like what are, what are some ways to kind of, if you're, if your provider isn't on board, how can we still get the care that, that we deserve? Yeah. And this is a great question and it's tough in this space because for, let's say I have a postmenopausal patient with recurrent UTI and her provider doesn't want to prescribe it to her. Um, you know, I can say, Hey, these are all the 
important studies with level one evidence showing that yeah. this reduces recurrent UTI. So you can go to your provider and be like, this is the important medical literature, not just I Google searched it, but right. this is the important medical literature. And this is how I can advocate for myself. Right. Um, and then the problem is, again, that there's no medical term for this. Right. right? I mean, for genitourinary syndrome of lactation or postpartum genitourinary syndrome, right? The same way there's postpartum depression. Yep. Um, and there is almost no research on it. Um, yep. There are some studies. Um, our friend, Rachel Rubin, who we're talking about before we started recording, um, had a great abstract on the safety. Um, I don't think it's a fully published paper, but I think if you search Rachel Rubin and breastfeeding and vaginal estrogen, the abstract would come up uh, showing that it was safe and it didn't reduce milk supply. Um, but but it's tough because yeah. the level of evidence is not there. We just know it's true and we, um, but it's tough. So that is, it's really difficult to advocate for yourself. Um, you know, I would say there are a few different ways. So you can make the argument like, you go to your physician and you say, I would like this prescription. I know you might be concerned that it will affect my milk supply. I accept that risk. Yeah. Right? And we know it's not, we know it's not going to do that. Yep. But it's definitely not going to be harmful to your child. Right. So, right. If they are telling you that you're not allowed to accept that risk, that is very patronizing, right? Mm -hmm. And we're supposed to be doing a better job at shared decision-making in medicine where somebody's allowed to accept their own risk. So if the yeah. woman's saying, I am happy if my milk supply goes down and I will give my child formula, I'm okay with that. Yeah. You should be allowed to be okay with that. Yeah, 100%. Right? Yep. <laughs> um and again, we know that won't happen, but even if you can't convince the provider about that, you can tell them you accept that risk and you want your quality of life. And my hope is that that would allow yeah. them to get the prescription. Um, and, and it is so tough because, I mean, honestly, like this discussion should not even be something that they have to advocate for. It should be part of prenatal education. Yeah. No, <laughs> and I, I think that's the frustrating. And, and like a mom has time to, to you know, fight with her OB when, you know, she's got all these other things going on. And that's where I think, again, providers in my space, we have to be like super educated and super aware of who in our area is informed and who's not. And there's some people that just aren't going to change. And, and I will say that the, the, the newer providers that are coming out, I have so much hope for because they're all on board. And even some of the ones, I think probably the ones that are most informed in the um, peri and menopause space, I think are coming around on um, the postpartum because they are seeing the parallels. And to your yeah. point, and I think maybe it was a couple of years ago, Sherella Glacey was saying, she's like, I wish they hadn't put um, uh, genitourinary symptoms in menopause. She's like, I wish they would have just left it as genitourinary symptoms, period, because that kind of screwed things for um, this other low estrogen population. But I, I like your point of accepting the risk because again, like no provider wants to be blamed for low milk. And, and I, I think if you go in and be like, 
you know, I, I know this is something you might be concerned about. I'm all on board. It's all good. I'm not going to blame you. Then it might be a little bit better. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Because there's no argument that not to prescribe it from a safety right. standpoint, because it's safe. Exactly. And exactly. The only, only potential physiologic concern is reduced milk supply, which again, we don't think is the case. Right. <laughs> the case. Well, I um, but I've, I've had some clients that like, they go get it. And a week later, they're like, Oh my God, I'm so much better. And to me, yeah. that's also because we triaged it out well. And I think that's yeah. also a huge role in my space where we ask the right questions, um, to, to be like, all right, well, is this musculoskeletal? Is this hormonal? And also understanding that a hormonal driver can also result in some pissed off muscles because things are hurting. So understanding kind of order of operations and that kind of stuff too, like, Hey, start this, see how it's going. And then maybe it's a better time for us to get started on the musculoskeletal side of things. So again, if you're just going in blind and musculoskeletal, you're, you're doing your, your physio patients a disservice for sure. So yeah. Yeah. So much also, I mean, estrogen is related to um, tissue healing to cellular mm -hmm. turnover, to vascularization, right? So if you have those patients and they have scar tissue and they're working on rehabbing that, I mean, their low yep. estrogen state is just not helping them. So yep. um, again, I know I am here wearing my urologist hat and drilling down on like urinary symptoms and vaginal dryness, but, you know, just from the standpoint of post-obstetric rehab mm -hmm. related to the trauma that occurred to your pelvic floor, um, you know, being able yep. to dabble the last year just there may really have a huge benefit. A little dab um, do you, right? <laughs> right? Because, because you are having somebody yeah. who's having to rehab from one of the most traumatic experiences that their body yeah. has ever undergone. And hormonally, the tools are not there. Yeah. Um, it's just so hard. So yep. you're right. I mean, in terms of, very myofascial components, the hormonal milieu can really affect what you're able to do and the response that they get to the physiotherapy, um, you know, regardless of, yeah. of the tissue, the, the mucosa, right. And the lubrication. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's huge, but I also wanted to just touch upon, you were mentioning, you know, new companies out there. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's so many telehealth companies out there now, um, that will prescribe vaginal estrogen. Um, you know, I don't work for them, but I noticed that this one company that prescribes vaginal estrogen called Evernow had reposted um, a video that I did about using vaginal estrogen in women in their 20s and 30s, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that their social media team was paying attention mm -hmm. to that and willing to amplify it tells me, oh, maybe this is a safe space for people who are outside of the peri and postmenopause box to access yep. prescriptions like that. And again, I don't speak for that company. I don't work for that company. I don't know. But, you know, if you go online and look vaginal estrogen, telehealth, postpartum, you know, get the vibe, right? Yep. Get the vibe. A yep. lot of these companies take insurance. Um, you know, a lot of them, right, have physicians, nurse practitioners um, who, you know, are informed, who are passionate about this area of yeah. care and can prescribe. So, so that is definitely an option. Um, you know, if you have spoken to your OB and your primary care provider and 
those folks won't prescribe it to you. I hope that's not the case, but yeah. you know, there are definitely so, so many options nowadays. Yep. Um, you know, and again, I think wherever you go, if it is one of those telehealth companies approaching them with this, I am informed it's safe for me and my baby. Yep. You may be concerned about breast production, breast milk production. I accept that risk. Let's do it. You yeah. know, I really, really think and believe that you will have success accessing those prescriptions. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's such so. a, a place for that. We were, we were talking earlier about, you know, growing up in rural areas and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, where, where I grew up, it was 70 miles to the, the first, you know, closest major health system. And um, my friend that found one of those companies, she's like two hours from DC and there's not a lot out there. And I, I think to have options where maybe the medical care in person isn't as up to date to be able to still um, have options to talk to people who are informed. Um, that's, you know, one of the beauties that that came out of um, the pandemic, I think, was telehealth and people accepting that. Um, I don't know if they got rid of delivery margaritas or not. Um, that was the other thing that I <laughs> definitely enjoyed. Um, but <laughs> one of the two good no, things out of it, know. telehealth and margaritas. <laughs> that is so funny. Um, I agree with you. So I had previously been working at a company that did telehealth um, for women's sexual concerns. Mm -hmm. And we did things like treat patients with yeah. vulvodynia, vestibulodynia, right? So for yep. people who may not know who are listening, um, you know, pain in the in the vulvar vestibule pain near the opening of the vagina in a very hormone sensitive tissue. And people would say to me, how do you possibly think you could treat vestibulodynia mm -hmm. without a physical exam? And I say, okay, if I know this person comes to me and says, it burns when I pee, I have pain with sex upon penetration. It all started after I began the oral contraceptive pill. Yep. I'm going to tell you, physical exam is great but it is so easy to just try a low dose mm -hmm. topical hormone and see if their symptoms improve. And yep. this person, many of the people we treated were in a rural area, had yep. no access to vulvar pain specialists yep. at all, at yep. all. So if you say, if you say this person cannot have that prescription until they get the physical exam, they are not going to get help. Ever. And they are going to suffer. Yes. 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 Yeah. And so, and so it's healthcare savings here. That's what we're doing. Yes. <laughs> and yes. improves quality and of I'm, life. Absolutely. absolutely. Right. Right. Of course. And, you know, and, and I'm going to ask them, right? Like, did you go to your primary care doctor? Did you go to your gynecologist? Yes. Mm -hmm. They told me it looked okay. Right. So I'm not like saying, oh, you have a giant fungating mass. Nobody's treating. Right. Right. It's this is somebody with a pain condition that had a clear onset related to hormonal inducing factors who did go to a local healthcare provider who said their exam was okay. Yep. This is an intervention we can give you. And that's actually incredibly good, effective telehealth and yes. incredibly good, effective sexual medicine care because yep. not everybody can access these specialists. There's just yeah. not enough. Well, it's so, amazing what a good subjective will do. Like, your parent, your, your patient, this is why I, I preach all the time to my students. I was like, they're telling you what's going on. It's up to you to piece it together. And there's patterns to things. And that, again, that was one of the beautiful things of, of switching over to telehealth is I became a better provider because you're listening for those things that when you put it all together, 
you're like, you know what, I'm going to go Occam's razor here, low hanging fruit. Obvious answer is probably yes. the correct one. And you can get them care faster. And chances are, it's going to be the right option. We don't need to get in the weeds on stuff. We don't need to spend thousands of dollars of testing and this and that. It's like, let's go low hanging, easy fruit and make some change. Um, so that, that I will give telehealth a lot of prop for that. And hopefully more people are using it to get to providers that are actually providing good evidence informed care. Um, yeah. So no, we could, sure. we could talk about that for a long time. <laughs> oh my God. It was funny. I mean, I will say when I worked at the large managed care organization, they made us do all these training modules on how to like listen to people because mm -hmm. they knew that doctors don't do any, <laughs> don't do any good training on how to actually listen to people. I mean, maybe they do nowadays, but when I started med school in 2006, um, no. <laughs> we just work bad too. We're like, if we can't, all of us are like, oh, if we can't touch somebody, we can't do anything. I'm like, actually, this is the best part up here. Yeah, <laughs> like, yes, I don't need to touch you. I can do it with both hands behind my back. <laughs> totally. Totally. And, and yeah, and they made us do all these training modules on, mm -hmm. you know, how to stop and not interrupt Yes. Because we see, you know, chief complaint when they're coming mm -hmm. in and our brain is already processing. I have to ask them about this, 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 mm -hmm. this, this, this. And the problem is that all those specific questions that your brain wants to ask could be potentially taking you the wrong direction. Yep. So you have to keep your mouth shut and wait yes. at least two whole minutes. Yes. And not say anything. Yes. <laughs> and your encounters will be far more efficient. Yes. And, and so the really important things I make sure to do whenever I talk to patients in person or telehealth is to say for the first, you know, ideally five minutes, but definitely two minutes, I'm not going to say anything. Yep. And then my next questions are, you know, if they didn't address it already, what do you think might be going on and what yes. are your goals? Right. Because yep. Because you could then go off into this whole thing and tell them what you think is going on. And they said, oh, well, I thought it was this. And mm -hmm. I did that research and I was hoping you were going to say the same thing. And you don't want that to come out in the last minute. Of no, um, that's, that's such a good question. That, that it, And again, I think a lot of, and, and probably in our space too, because I, I think when you go through, um, I think any of the sort of pelvic issue, I don't care what it is, you tend to go down the rabbit hole information wise. And I think a lot of our patients actually are incredibly well-informed. Sometimes it's not the right information, but um, I, I think a lot of them do have a good sense of what's going on. And it's, again, it's up to us to to, to help them kind of pull that together in, in a nice collaborative way. So that's a cool question. I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. At, at the end of every episode, um, we ask everybody a couple of questions. Um, as a oh. new mom, I don't know if you have an answer to this one. Um, what book or podcast, what book are you reading or podcast are you listening to right now? Oh, I, um, you know, I, I'm, well, okay. Podcast, um, I'm very bad, but I guess it's the okay. main one I listen to is Backtable Urology Podcast, which is, Ooh. <laughs> it's geared towards urologists. So if you're not a urologist, you might not like it, but, um, but then again, there's some really interesting topics. I've been on it before. Of course you have. And, of course, well, why you would like it. And, they, and they, they provide a ton of information. So, you know, like sometimes, I mean, it's interesting, right? Like the first time I ever learned to do a good pelvic floor exam was when I personally went to a pelvic floor 
physical therapist mm -hmm. weekend course. Mm -hmm. And I went because I was there to teach about hormones, but then I learned so much yep. and participated in the education. So the point being, sometimes if you find the educational content that's not geared towards you, but actually towards a different profession, you might learn some things that are really great. <laughs> I, I have learned more because again, I think about what we do is such sort of a mashup anyway. Um, I learn a ton from people who are in sports and neuro and orthopedics and urology and GY. And like, I, I think that's probably why I really like this is because I really can take what I want and mash it all up and, and make fun, good stuff. And the fact that it's all new anyway, keeps it exciting. So yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I'm going to check out the urology. What would you say? Backdoor back urology? Backtable urology. Oh, okay. Backtable sounds better than backdoor. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> urology. Back so backtable <laughs> When you're doing surgery, the mm -hmm. back table is where you'll like prepare a ah, specimen. Okay. Um, so for example, I used to do um, surgical correction of bent erections and we would okay. do a dermal graft. And so mm -hmm. you take out a piece of dermis from the lower abdomen and then you'd go to the mm. back table and prepare that piece of skin okay. um, for being, then you go back to the patient and put it, put it on. So the back table urology is referring to, to that. Okay. the surgical. Yeah. And so they have back table for a number of other surgical specialties. Like there, okay. I think there's back table ENT or something for mm -hmm. ear, nose and throat. Um, but yeah. And then today. Yeah. And then I'm not reading it yet, but I was just sent in the mail, um, Dr. Louise Newsom, her new book. So I don't know if, if you guys don't know of her, she's a general practitioner in the United Kingdom, who's a huge menopause advocate. And she just put out a book, the definitive guide to, to Perry and postmenopause. Yep. And she sent it to me. And I am <laughs> awesome. excited to read that. Um, because she is an excellent educator. Yay. So, I can't wait to yes. hear about that one and dive into that. I, yeah. I'm drinking from the the fire hose on on peri and mena stuff right now. So I'll, I'll add that one to the list. All right. Favorite like activity. You're saying it. Oh, oh, oh go ahead. No, no. No, no. I mean, just like you're saying it, just it taking learnings from that space puts the mm -hmm. light bulb on for our other experiences, right? Oh, to, totally. To yourself. Oh, yeah. the hot flashes I had postpartum were low estrogen state and yeah. that depression was mm -hmm. a low estrogen state or particularly not the low estrogen, but the tanking of the hormone yep. led to that depression. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just so powerful. So no, that's, that's a really good point that, that I, I think you put into words what I've been feeling lately, like learning about all this stuff. It's making me look at all this other stuff in entirely new light and, and understanding where we're missing the boat on a lot of this stuff. So yeah, yeah and definitely. So much as modern healthcare providers, we're just told like memorize the guidelines, but right. what we really want is that in-depth, nuanced understanding about mm -hmm. how human bodies are working and yep. why. And yeah. we can't always make a patient feel perfect, but if we can help them really understand what's happening in their body, mm -hmm. that's like 
90% of what they want, I feel. Um, I like that. Most of the time. So I like yeah, that. Anyways. Cool. All right. Favorite activity since becoming a mom. And it doesn't have to involve your daughter. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I have no idea. Sleeping. It's totally fine. Sleeping. That that counts. I mean, you're again, you're still in it. Congrats on making it through the first year. You know, the first birthday party is really all about you and not about her, right? I know. Like, we had my son's first birthday in a bar. Um, it just so happens oh, nice. that um, the bar was owned by like one of my husband's like former fraternity brothers. And so lots of lights and games and that kind of stuff. And they're like, okay, you just got to be out by two because that's when two in the afternoon, not, not in the morning, but sure, yeah. th that's when other people come in and they don't want to see the consequences of their actions. And I was like, sweet, I'm down with that. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Our right. daughter's <clears throat> party is going to be at a park outside nice. because we live in Los Angeles and, and you can forecast <laughs> is, is 77 degrees and sunny. <laughs> and as somebody who grew up in the Northeast, that was, I will take that. Not something with no. a winter, you could ever do with a winter birthday. No, <laughs> so I you am cannot. excited about that. You cannot. <laughs> I love that. All right. Who's somebody, and I'll tweak this question a little bit. Like um, who's somebody kind of in the hormone space or even pregnancy postpartum, like any sexual medicine, like any of that stuff right now, like who's, who's lighting you up? Who's, who are you super excited about? Uh, you know, I would say, have you have you read the book Estrogen Matters? It I literally just got delivered to my house on Friday. It's on um it's it, it's on the desk. <laughs> nice, amazing. So yeah, the book Estrogen Matters and the author is the um Avram Blooming. Yes. Yep. Um but you can follow the Estrogen Matters social media account. Um it is phenomenal and I think really really eye-opening. Um and takes a deep dive on this, the Women's Health Initiative study, which was a billion dollar study that completely transformed women's um, peri and postmenopausal healthcare in the United States and not for the better. And it, this goes through it with a fine tooth comb and discusses what was found, why we shouldn't take that at face value. Right. And, you know, I think when we're talking about things like the safety of estrogen, being armed with really, really important, nuanced understanding of estrogen yeah. and its safety is so important. Um, yeah. And it's something I didn't learn in med school. I didn't learn in res. I mean, we learned the WHI study in med school, right? Not why it was bad. And so right. we learned that we didn't learn it in med school. We didn't learn these things in, in residency and that book is phenomenal. So that would be, um, someone you should know about. And if awesome. you don't even read the book, then you can follow estrogen matters. Uh, yeah. Accounts. Yep. There's um, so, so much good account. stuff on social right now. And I get, thank God the algorithm caught up. Um, <laughs> and so I'm getting some better stuff for sure. Oh, you for gotta, sure. You I mean, gotta watch those one-offs yeah. that pull you in the wrong way. <laughs> My, my Instagram is all people get providing really nuanced healthcare information about hormones. And then somebody mm -hmm. being like, here's a makeup tutorial, 2016 versus 2023. And then yeah. some 22 year old is pouring an entire bottle of foundation on her face. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, no. Well, maybe next time <laughs> she's putting like um, estradiol on her face. I've seen that too. So. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Last that one. That is an last area one. that needs more research because. Just a little. <laughs> yes. 
All right. For you wrapping it up here as a mom, what does it mean to you this first year being an active mom in postpartum? You're just doing like staying things, vertical. <laughs> doing things for myself. Yeah. Um, last weekend, I went to a sex positive brunch party. Yay. And there were no children. And my husband stayed at home with our daughter and I got dolled up and I brought my white elephant sex toy gift and hung out on a patio overlooking the hills of LA and drank mimosas. That sounds amazing. And it was glorious. That sounds amazing. (laughs) So to me, being an active mom postpartum is not getting a really good jogging stroller. It's when I have time doing something for myself. Um, I love that. And, and, and I will like credit where credit's due. I'm so glad that, you know, when socials got a little bit busier and, and, you know, people were paying attention more that my kids are, are older. I can't imagine trying to put out information and keep, you know, people informed and trying to, to raise a small one. So um, I, I totally bow down to those of you with, with new little <laughs> ones and, and you're, 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 you're keeping all of us up to date and kind of still like screaming from the rooftops, Hey, we need to pay attention here. And that's no small feat to do those two things. So, so as one mom to the other, I appreciate you as a professional one to the other. I appreciate you and all of that. So if you want to learn more, you. thank you. Yeah. If, if you Sorry, learn, I just... You're all good. You're all good. If you want to learn more about Dr. Ashley Winter, you can go to Twitter and find her there. Um, I'm going to try and keep encouraging her to get over on the gram. Um, show a little more of her smiling face. I know. And I'm so happy for this. (laughs) You can find her Ashley G winter um, over on Instagram. Um, Dr. Ashley winter. Thank you so much for all you do and congrats on making it through that first year as a mom. You got this. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and, and having these important conversations. Thanks. Did you enjoy the podcast? If so, leave us a five-star review on iTunes and tell a friend to do the same. Are you a postpartum mom or postpartum pro wanting to know more about getting back to running after baby? Check out all my free goodies on carriepagliano.com. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Carrie Pagliano and her guests to the show. The content should not be taken as medical advice and is for entertainment purposes only. Always consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.